So, before we get started, I'm just going to say uh, one, well, a couple things, but <laughs> one thing in particular, and that is that uh, I will apologize for the length of last week's message. Uh, that happened as a result of me coming up here with my phone and not starting it. I usually, you know, Michael and I usually put a timer on here to kind of keep ourselves uh, mindful of the length, and I didn't get it started. And after I got done with explaining who the Holy Spirit is, I realized, ah, I didn't start that. So I was like, I don't know where we're at on length and, you know, kind of editing verses on the fly, reading some, not reading others. So the main thing I want to share is thank you for your patience and thank you for your grace. Um, These theology messages have so much information that we are doing our best to discern what information we feel like needs to be communicated here in 45 to 55 minutes in our small truncated time together. Uh, As you all know, when we began this series, we said, hey, these are studies that academia may spend years in on one, and we're trying to condense a lot of this into, you know, 45, 50 minutes. So um, apologize for last week, but thank you for your grace. Um, This morning is going to be very similar. I hope to be a little bit more concise and a little bit more articulate. We have a lot of verses uh, to get through, but um, have had to make some decisions about what we're going to look at as it pertains to angelology and demonology. And if you came in here thinking this is going to be really, really juicy this morning, it might not be. It might not be quite as juicy as maybe you had hoped, and part of that is just because there's so many different ways we could go with this. So many different angles and things that we could consider as it pertains to angelology and demonology. I felt like, well, we should at least just cover some basics in our time together this morning. And so what we're basically going to look at is going to be two sections, two broad sections that you'll see from your outlines and your notes. We're going to look at who angels and demons are, or who are they, and what do angels and demons do. Fortunately, uh, we have the privilege of spending time together as a body of believers, and you all are very mature believers, and you're very biblically literate, as we would say. And so because of that, we don't have to spend time proving that demons exist or proving that angels exist, because the Bible tells us they do. And we all believe the Bible to be true, and we know that, so we don't have to spend time validating their existence, but rather we can spend time looking at who they are and what they do. And because, because God has created everything, and God has created angels, they are a little lower than he is. And they occupy this space, if you will, between us and God. And so one of the things that I want to focus on this morning is what that looks like as they relate to God and then what that looks like as they relate to us as humanity. So, the term angel literally means messenger. That's predominantly their role. That's predominantly their job, is to be messengers. All right, And we see them show up in human form, because that's how God has chosen to reveal them, so that they can relate to us on our terms. The Old Testament has... Just over a hundred references to angels. 
The New Testament has somewhere around 165 references to angels. That's a lot. That's a lot of references. They're kind of a big deal. And they do a lot in Scripture. So if we take our first section, who are angels and demons? Well, they're created beings. Last week when we looked at the Holy Spirit, one of the first things we felt important to identify is that he is a person. Well, the same is true of angels. They are created beings. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. So that means spiritual beings that we can't necessarily see with our carnal eyes have been created by God. He has created everything. John 1, verses 1 through 3, all things came into being through Jesus. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 148. Psalm 148, verses 1 through 5. 148, verses 1 through 5, it says, Praise the Lord! Praise the Lord from the heavens! Praise Him in the heights! Praise Him, all His angels! Praise Him, all His hosts! Praise Him, sun and moon! Praise Him, all stars of light! Praise Him, highest heavens! And the waters that are above the heavens, let them praise the name of the Lord. For he commanded and they were created. Praise him, heavenly hosts. Praise him, angels. Because he spoke, he commanded, and they came into existence. They were created. So we see that angels have been created by God. They aren't some race that randomly hooked up with him in the universe and said, Hey, you want a partner on earth? Hey, what do you say we team up and, and do this project together? No. God is preeminent. God is first and foremost. And everything has been created by him. And that includes angels. Turn to Matthew 22. And we'll spend a little bit of time in Matthew here for a few minutes. Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, verse 30. This is Jesus' response when the Pharisees were asking a question of him about marriage in heaven, hey, what will be marriage be like and who will this man be married to in heaven? And Jesus' response is, for the, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, the reason we've highlighted that verse for a second is not necessarily about marriage, but one of the things that reveals is that angels do not marry and do not procreate. God has created a finite number of spiritual beings. They are not self-promoting. They cannot create more of themselves. They have been created with a finite number, and that's it. 1 Timothy 5.21. Stay in Matthew. I'll turn to 1 Timothy. We're going to come back to Matthew and do a couple of other things, but 1 Timothy says, oops, 1 Timothy 5.21, 1 
Paul says this to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. So the next thing that we're going to see here for a moment is that all angels, when created, were created good. They were created good and holy. You should still be in Matthew. Turn to Matthew chapter 25. So Paul has differentiated between angels by writing to Timothy and saying, God's chosen. Hmm, So that must mean that there is a difference. So Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. Matthew 25, verse 41. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and who? His angels. So here we see, after Paul has referred to chosen ones and chosen angels, we see here that Jesus had made reference to the devil having his own angels. Hmm. So what we see here is that now we have two factions. We have good and holy angels, God's chosen, and we have some who the Bible refers to as fallen angels. Interesting. So how does that happen? God is good. God's creation is good. God cannot be a part of evil. He has no lie, no evil within himself. He is purely good, and everything that he creates is good, except when that which he creates is good, chooses something contrary to him. Chooses of their own will and own volition to be different. To not be a part of God. Matt and I were talking this week, and we were, he shared about St. Augustine, or St. Augustine. Uh, I'm going to read a quote for you, and this is a lengthy quote, but just hang with me because it's, it's good. It's really, really good. St. Augustine says this, about these angels, whom are good and whom are bad. Because I, we ask the question, we want to know, did God make them bad? No. That the contrary propensities in good and bad angels have arisen, not from a difference in their nature and origin. In other words, God didn't create some good and some bad. But rather, since God, the author and creator of all essences is good, created them both. But from a difference in their wills and their desires. That's the difference between these good and bad angels, these fallen angels and these holy angels, is their will and their desires. It is impossible to doubt. He says, while some steadfastly continue in that which was the common good of all, namely in God himself and in his eternity, truth and love, others being enamored rather of their own power as if they could be their own good. They lapse to this private good of their own from that higher and beatific good which was common to all and bartering the lofty dignity of eternity for the inflation of pride, the most assured verity for the slyness of vanity, uniting love for factious partisanship, they became proud, deceived, and envious. 
the cause, watch this, therefore of the blessedness of the good, in other words, the good beings, the good angels, is adherence to God. That makes sense. Their blessedness comes as a result of them adhering to God. However, the cause of the others' misery will be found in the contrary. That is, in their not adhering to God. So the misery that fallen angels and demons will experience is a direct result of them not adhering to God and his goodness. Wherefore, if when the question is asked, why are the former blessed, it is rightly answered because they adhere to God. And when it is asked, why are the latter miserable, it is rightly answered because they do not adhere to God. Then there is no other good for the rational or intellectual creature save God only. Isn't that a great paragraph? I mean, it's a tongue twister, and there's a lot there. And when you read his stuff, it's all like that, isn't it? It is so profound and so well put. But he reveals to us that God did not create them with a good nature and a bad nature, but rather he created them all good, and some chose through their own desires, pride, and will to oppose God. So that is in part how we have demons. We have fallen angels and we have good and holy angels. So, angels and demons are persons. They have personalities. Just because they are spirit beings does not mean that they do not have personalities, much like the Holy Spirit. And they have personalities, which means that they have intelligence, emotions, and a will. They have intelligence, emotions, and a will. Uh, Turn to Matthew 8, if you would, please. Matthew 8, verses 28 to 32. Matthew 8, 28 to 32. And when he had come to the other side, into the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. And they were so exceedingly violent that no one could pass by that road. And behold, they cried out, saying, What do we have to do with you, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was a, at a distance from the herd of many swine that were feeding, and the demons began to entreat him, saying, If you are going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Be gone. And they came out and went into the swine. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. Now, the reason we went to that passage for a second is that we said that angels and demons are persons. They have personalities. They possess intelligence, emotions, and will. What we see here is that when Jesus encountered these two demon-possessed individuals, what did the demons call out to him? They said, Have you come here to torment us? Last week, we talked about inanimate objects don't have feelings. They don't have emotions. You can't say to electricity, I'm going to torment you. The electricity doesn't care. The wind doesn't care. These demons with personalities understood their lot in creation, in the universe. They understood their fate. And they said, have you come to torment us before the appointed time? They knew who Jesus was. Turn to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verse 10. 
Matthew 18, verse 10. Jesus says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. So we see that angels, spirit beings, have personalities, and they occupy a space between heaven and earth where they get to see the Father's face, and at the same time they watch the little ones in whom they have been entrusted to watch over. Those little ones in whom God has dispatched them to guard and watch over. And so they have eyes, they have personalities that can see the Father's face and watch us here on earth. 2 Corinthians 11.3 says that just as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, Satan, a created spiritual being, has a will and a personality and he's sly. He's cunning. The wind... Electricity, energy is not sly, it is not cunning, but Satan himself is. First Peter chapter 1, verse 12. The Holy Spirit has revealed things to us which angels long to look. It's a little bit ambiguous what Paul is talking about exactly, but I think one of the things is that the angels participate in watching us accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and hearing the gospel message and accepting this free gift. And they rejoice. They long to see people come to faith in Jesus. And they rejoice when this takes place. They have emotions. James 2.19. You know, when James says, okay, so you believe in God. Good for you. So do the demons. And they shudder. They're scared. They know who God is and they know what... God is going to eventually do to them because of what God has said in his word. Emotions. Revelation 12, 17. So the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. That's kind of vindictive, don't you think? Retaliation, vindication. That's beheld by a personality. 2 Timothy 2, 26. 2 Timothy 2, 26. Believers, Paul writes... I hope that they would abstain from the activities and come to their senses, and he says, so that they might escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So he says that believers can be ensnared by the strategies of the devil because he has a will, and that will is to ensnare us, to ensnare all of humanity, but certainly he goes after believers, doesn't he? So we see that they have personalities, intelligence, emotions, will. Uh... Next section, angels and demons have limitations. Angels and demons are created beings. They are not omniscient, omnipresent, or omnipotent. Now you may say, boy, Satan sure feels like he's got quite a hold on this world and he's pretty active. He certainly is. But, dare I say, one of the reasons that Satan appears appears to be omnipresent, is simply because he has minions at his disposal operating on his behalf. Right? When he's not physically somewhere tormenting someone, he has demons doing it for him, bidding his services. He's created. He is not created equal to God. Therefore, he is not omnipotent, omniscient, or omnipresent. Matthew chapter 24, 36 uh, this is where Jesus is saying, um, not even the Son of Man knows when the Father will dispatch me again. He also says, nor do the angels and demons know. They don't know when 
the Father will dispatch Jesus again to return. Well, if they were omniscient, they would know that, but they don't. They have a limitation. Um, Hebrews 2.16 says that God has not made salvation available for angels or demons. And one of the reasons for this is because they are not made in the image of God. They are not called sons and daughters of God. You and I are. We've been made in the image of God. But angels and demons have not. They are subject to the will of God as we are. An aspect of their limitation is that they are subject to the will of God just as we are. Hebrews 1, chapter 14 says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent to render services for those who will inherit salvation? So what the author of Hebrews is revealing to us there is that angels are dispatched by God. They are sent to render services to those who will inherit salvation. Who is that? That's us. We are going to inherit and have inherited salvation, and therefore, one of the jobs and responsibilities and tasks that God gives to the angels is to render services to us in our times of need. They are subject to the will of God. Um, Job 2, 1 through 6. Let's turn to Job, if you, if you would, please. Job chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Some of you might kind of know this by heart. Job chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And who? Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, uh, Well, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it, creating some havoc, bothering people, messing up lives. I'm paraphrasing. You get the message version from Dustin. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Boy, that's got to make Satan mad, doesn't it? And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth thy hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse thee to thy face. And so the Lord said to Satan, Watch, behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. All right. Challenge. Deal on. Mess with my servant Job if you want to. But you've got a limitation. You cannot destroy him. Save his life. And what you'll see, and what God knows is going to happen through Job, is that he is going to glorify God. He is going to win out. But Satan has been given a limitation. He's still subject to the holy creator of the universe. Luke 8, we don't need to go there, but Luke 8, chapter 28, verse 31. Demons still obey Jesus as he is God. We saw a parallel passage in, in Matthew where he cast out the demons into the swine. This Luke passage is a parallel passage. And Jesus even calls and asks, who is this? And he says, I'm legion because there's many of us. Jesus says, be gone, out. And they have to obey. So they obey the will of God. They are subject to the will of God. 
They were created with what I would say some autonomy. In other words, they could sin. Angels were given and created with an ability to not choose God. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. This is a really, really powerful verse. 14, verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, sun of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven I will raise my throne above the stars of God and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol. Wow! Isaiah is referencing Satan's decision to elevate himself, to separate himself from God and say, I know how to be good. And I know how to be as great as God is, and I'm going to sit on the mountaintop, and I'm going to elevate myself to the Most High. Wrong. He thought he had some autonomy, and to some degree, he did. And God has dealt and will continue to deal with that sin of Satan. Jude 6 says that angels abandon their positions of authority. Second Peter 2, verse 4 He says that God did not spare angels when they did what? When they sinned, and as a result, he cast them into hell. And then Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 8, the author of Hebrews reminds us that angels have been made higher than mankind for now, but there will come a time when God's elect will judge angels. And we have a similar passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 through 3, where Paul refers to us, what he, I would say, governing and ruling in the new heavens and the earth, which will include the holy ones, the good angels. So Hebrews has said that God has made angels a little higher than man for now. But there will come a time when we are glorified and when we reign and rule with Jesus that we will be participants in judging angels. For the good angels that will be probably governing and ruling alongside them, for the bad angels and the demons that will be watching God cast them down and judge them for eternity. Now, it will not be solely our responsible. I don't know that we will have a strong role in that. That will be reserved for God himself. But we have been made a little bit lower, but there will come a time where we'll be active in watching the judgment of these other spirit beings. They have personalities, they have limitations, and they have not been created equal with God. Let's look at our second section. The ministry of angels and the activities of demons. You know, the word ministry simply means service. And so I didn't feel comfortable saying the ministry of angels and the ministry of demons. If, If the root word for ministry is service... We could say that, yes, demons provide a service to Satan, but they certainly do not provide a service to us. So I changed it and said, the ministry of angels and the activities of demons. So let's look at the ministry of angels in relationship or in relation to God. 
What does their ministry look like in relation to God? Well, angels are servants dispatched by God. Hebrews 1, verse 10 through chapter 2, verse 5, says that they are not equal with God and they do not sit at his right hand. Rather, they are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. Um, The author there says that their messages are reliable because their messages come from God. Uh, I love how Charles Ryrie put this. He says that the ministry of angels is that they are priestly messengers in the temple universe of God. Angels are priestly messengers in the temple universe of God. So they are servants for those of us who will inherit salvation. Uh, They also praise and worship God. Angels praise and worship God. Psalm 148, which we read, says that praise him all his angels, praise him all his hosts. Many of you know the Isaiah passage when God ushered Isaiah in with a vision into the temple. And he's there and he witnesses the angels hovering, and he talks about how they you know, would cover their faces and their feet, and they had wings, and they were touching the coal, and they touched the coal to his lips, and whoa, I'm a man of unclean spirits. And he says that what the angels were doing was worshiping God. And they sang, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So angels praise and worship God. Hebrews 1.6 Let all angels worship him. I'm going to read Revelation 5. Revelation 5 verses 8 through 13. Revelation 5 verses 8 through 13. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou hast slain and did purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you have made to them to be a kingdom and priests to our God." How far was I going to go? 13. And they will reign upon the earth. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Wow! Praising and worshiping God. That's what we are going to be doing. When God trans us and transforms us from this life to the next, we will be praising and worshiping God. What a great example we have here in Revelation. One of my favorite quotes from A.W. Tozer, he says this, I can safely say on the authority of all that is revealed in the word of God that any man or woman on this earth who is bored 
and turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. Isn't that a powerful statement? If you find worship boring and commonplace now, you are not ready for heaven because that's what we are going to be doing. We are going to be worshiping the God of the universe. We're going to be singing holy, holy, holy. Angels serve God and are instruments of his judgment. Angels serve God and they are instruments of his judgment. So we've seen that they're servants dispatched by God. We see that they praise and worship God. Well, they serve and they act as instruments of his judgment. Uh, Psalm 103, verses 20 to 21. 103, verses 20 to 21. Bless the Lord, O you angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Um, verse Revelation 22. I'm already there, so I'll navigate to that quickly. Revelation 22, verse 9. And he said to me, Do not... Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. And then Revelation 7, verses 1 through 3. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind should blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to, to harm the earth and the sea. Whew. So the angels are participants in some of God's judgment. Revelation 8, verses 1 and 2. And when he broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him, that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. Michael will share a lot more of this when we get into eschatology, but what we see is a large presence and activity of angels in the book of Revelation as it pertains to judgment. They have a strong role as instruments of his judgment. Now, what about demons? The activities of demons in relation to God. Well, I'll say this. Demons operate as Satan's gophers. He's a created being. He has limitations. He's not omniscient or omnipresent, as we mentioned. His servants and he himself are by default in opposition to God in every way. They seek to oppose God in every way that they can. Whatever is not good is not of God. And so one of the things that demons do in relation to God is they oppose God's plans and truths. They oppose God's plans and truths. Revelation 16, verses 13 through 16, says that the demons assembled the kings around the world to battle against God. That's going to be the battle of Armageddon. That they went around stirring up the kings of the nations of the world to come against God. Leviticus 17, 7, Deuteronomy 32, 17, and 1 Corinthians 10, 20 speaks about how demons promote the worship of false gods. I think there's even a reference in there to the god of goats. They're the ones that 
whisper in the ears of God's people and say, why don't you build an idol and worship that? That's against God. God wants you to worship him, so naturally we're going to whisper to you to worship something else. 1 John, since I'm close to Revelation, I'm going to go there. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Okay, so the spirit who confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, that's from God. You got another spirit that says something contrary? Uh Uh-uh. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming. And now it is already in the world. And he says in verse 4, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We'll come back to that passage at the end. But you see, the evil spirits oppose God, and the evil spirits try to pretend as though Jesus is not Lord and Savior. That the gospel message is... That's what they're after. That's what they seek to accomplish. Is to convince people that he did not die for our sins. That he's not God. 1 Timothy 4, 1-4. Demons promote strange teachings and strange doctrines. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1-4. Revelation 2... 20 through 24, demons manipulate right and wrong and they blur the truth. Boy, do we see that today in our culture, don't we? This manipulation, this misrepresentation that what is right is actually wrong and what is wrong is actually right, my gosh. I mean, it is rampant in our world today. That's the influence of demons, to oppose God. If God says this is what is right, then the demon's job is to flip that, twist it, reverse it, strike it, and make sure that everybody believes it's wrong. That's the activity of demons in relationship to God. They oppose God's plans and his truths. Now, demons are sometimes used by God. Oh, gosh. Demons are sometimes used by God. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14, God used an evil spirit to punish King Saul. Well, God's ultimate plan was that Saul would relinquish the throne and who would come in? King David. That was part of God's plan, that King David would be established as Israel's king. And so part of God's plan was to allow demons to torment Saul, and it served as a form of judgment upon Saul for his activity and for his lifestyle and his decisions. It wasn't God being unnecessarily unruly and cruel. Saul had been a bad king. Saul had made bad decisions, and so Saul was being judged by God. And one of the ways that God used that was to allow demons to torment him. 1 Kings 22, God allowed an evil spirit to control the prophets, speaking to King Ahab, gave him wrong advice. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 7, this one might be interesting for you. Paul refers to that thorn in the flesh. But do you know how he refers to that thorn in the flesh? He refers to it as a messenger of Satan. He realizes that God allows something, some messenger of Satan, to kind of just torment Paul a little bit, to remind Paul 
that he still needs God. God's actually using that demonic activity to say, Paul, remember, you still need me. And to the degree that you are tormented a little bit, you are forced to rely on me. All right. The ministry of angels in relationship to people. Well, we'll say that angels bring a national influence. In Daniel 12, verse 1, it says that at that time, Michael, the great prince who watches over your people, will arise. In other words, we get the inference here that Michael, the archangel, appears to specifically guard the nation of Israel. Archangel, uh, Michael has been assigned to watch over Israel. Um, in Daniel 4, 17, angels influence nations and leaders in ways that will reveal God's power, his sovereignty, and his preeminence. Um, Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire against me? Why do they rise up against me and do vain things, says the Lord? Angels can influence, demons can influence, and counsel leaders to make decisions. Well, angels counsel leaders to make decisions that glorify God. Um, Angels bring news and announcements. Angels bring news and announcements. Genesis 18. There were three angels visited by Abraham and Sarah. I mean, visited to Abraham and Sarah uh, to promise Isaac. I tell you, there are so many references to the angel of the Lord, which we have said is the pre-incarnate Christ. These references that I'm giving you about news and announcements are just some of those references that do not refer specifically to the angel of the Lord, rather just angels of God who have been sent. Galatians 3.19, Paul implies that angels assisted Moses with the law. Um, When we were spending uh, time around Christmas with our Christmas messages, we learned that the angel Gabriel met Zechariah in the temple and promised John the Baptist. And remember Zechariah said, "Mm, I'm pretty old, Elizabeth is pretty old, not sure this is going to happen. And Gabriel said, mm, well, here's the sign. Now you've got to be quiet for nine months. Sorry, pal. Your disbelief, here's the sign that this is real. Uh, angels spoke to Mary, Joseph, and the shepherds announcing Jesus' birth. Um, Acts eight twenty six. Philip was sent to Ethiopian to share the gospel. So we see that they bring news and announcements. Angels bring rescue and defense. For God's people. Genesis 19, two angels rescued Lot from the destruction of Sodom. Uh, Daniel 6, you guys remember this one. Um, Daniel said, My God set his angel, sent his angel, and closed the lion's mouths. Daniel wasn't harmed in the lion's den. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is walking by the fiery furnace and sees how many people in there? Four. How many people were sent in there? Shad, Rad, Mish, angel. Jesus in the garden said, I can call 12 legions of angels and stop this arrest if I wanted to. Because angels come to rescue and defense. We know that um, an angel opened the doors and and released Peter and John in prison. Remember that story in Acts? Peter and John are in prison. And the, 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 uh, the marshal, the... Head guard goes to get them and finds that they're not there. And people come back and report to the council. You want to know where those guys are? They're in the temple preaching. Well, wait a second. We blocked them up last night. Nope. They're out there continuing to preach the gospel. 
Because an angel came, opened the gates, took the shackles off, sent them back to the temple and said, keep preaching. Uh, angels bring comfort. Uh, the angel comforted Mary at the news of her pregnancy. Uh, Mary's Magnificat, when Michael shared that with us at Christmas, reveals this amazing confidence that she had in the Lord. This young girl has just been told, you're going to be pregnant and she is praising God because of the comfort that the angel provided to her. Um, he comforted Joseph. Uh, your, uh, your wife is pregnant, and uh, we both know you didn't do it. And Joseph is given comfort. Don't divorce her. This is the plan of God. Um, two angels spoke to the disciples as they watched Jesus ascend in Acts 1. They said, what are you guys still doing here? He's returning to the Father. Get busy. And Cornelius, I love this one. Acts 10, Cornelius was visited by an angel. And what the text tells us, Luke says that the angel said, your prayers have been heard. One of the reasons I'm here, Cornelius, is because you have been praying to the Father. Your prayers have been heard. Go meet Peter. And let's look at the activity of demons in relationship to people or in relation to people. Demons can afflict people. The Bible says that the devil seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. So do his minions. Um, Matthew 9, 33, Matthew 12, 22, Matthew 17, 15 through 18. Demons cause muteness, blindness, seizures. And we see that on numerous occasions, the afflicted, were brought to Jesus for healing. And we see that in Revelation 9, verses 14 to 19, I won't go there, but Revelation 9, verses 14 to 19, demons can even bring about death. But I want to make something very clear here this morning. Affliction does not automatically mean demonic activity. To be afflicted does not automatically mean that it is a result of demons. Um, you might remember that the Pharisees were challenging Jesus one time about the man who had been lame from birth. And they said, is this the result of this man's sins or is it his parents' sins? And Jesus said, no, it is neither. It is so that God might be glorified. Well, you know, sometimes we get sick. Sometimes we experience afflictions in this life. And sometimes it's just about us working through that, God delivering us from those situations, that he might get the glory. It is not necessarily automatic or autonomous with demonic activity, because that's the first thing that we want to jump to sometimes. We want to assume, oh, I'm being attacked by a demon. Not necessarily. We live and operate in a fallen world. As a result of sin entering the world, we will get sick. We will experience trouble and hardship. That just is part of being human on this side of eternity. My friend uh, Nathan Shaw used to often say that he always had a concern for those believers who get fixated on demonic activity and, dare I say, exorcisms. And he always used to say, you know, the moment you start to take your eyes off of Jesus, you got problems. The Bible clearly states that demons are active and that they can bother us and afflict us. But if we get fixated on them, we're taking our eyes off of Jesus and we run a great risk. Demons can possess people. Oh boy. 
Mark 5, verses 1 through 13, is the story of the demons uh, possessed the, the, the herd of pigs. And the idea or the term demon-possessed or demonized occurs 13 times in the New Testament. And it occurs all in the Gospels. It only occurs four times after the resurrection. And those are all in Acts. So 13 times in the New Testament and four times after the resurrection, all in Acts. And so we'll say that demon possession is the direct involuntary control over an individual. Um, But there's a difference between being influenced and affected by demonic activity as compared with being possessed or controlled. There's a big difference. Humanity, you and I are living in a space where there is a spiritual war taking place. We're all affected, but that does not mean that we are possessed. We can be affected and influenced by Satan and his minions, but it does not mean that we are possessed. Ephesians 6.12, For our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but with the principalities, with the powers, and with the world rulers of this present darkness, with the evil spirits in the heavens. The contemporary English version says, I'm not fighting against humans. I'm not fighting against humans. So, to kind of pull this together, I would say that naturally our next question is, can I be demon-possessed? Isn't that where we all go in our heads? Don't we always want to know that? Every time demonology comes up and we hear about possession, we go, can I be occupied? It's a natural question. You know, I, I wrote down in my notes, this might be the fourth most debated topic among Christians after Tongues, age of the earth, and the rapture. After tongues, age of the earth, and rapture, I think the next most debated is, can believers be, we'll say, indwelt and possessed by demons? And I'm going to say this. Well, fortunately, Michael will bring um, all of that other stuff to a close for us, especially the rapture. He's going to give us the exact dates and everything when he comes to eschatology. Ryrie presents a couple of great points to consider as we pull this together. When we, and he, and he, he challenges us when we ask this question, can I be possessed? The first thing is, we should probably divorce ourselves from the terms demon possession and demon dwelling. And the reason for that is they imply the same dynamics as the Holy Spirit's permanent indwelling of us. And the reality is that neither Satan nor demons can permanently indwell and have victory as God can. Okay? So in a way, it's kind of just a flawed term for us to use because we immediately compare it to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is permanent and which is God himself. Alright? And so even if demons can have an influence for a time, it is not with the same effect as God's indwelling is for us. Number two, the New Testament doesn't speak definitively about demons operating in Christians and there is a lack of commanding of exorcisms after Pentecost. Okay, So in the fabric of the New Testament, we don't have a lot of examples, if any, where the Bible specifically says this believer became indwelt. Now we have one reference to Ananias that said Satan filled his heart. But can we conclusively say he was a believer? Maybe, maybe not, I don't know, we don't, we don't know, right? So all of the demonic activity and the possessions occurred prior to Pentecost, and Jesus was the one healing and exercising. 
And we don't have commands from Peter, James, and John, and others as believers to go out and start doing all of these exorcisms. That's not a very primary command that's been given in all of the epistles, if ever. And the third thing is, are we asking the wrong question? Maybe we should ask whether Satan can work just as well from the outside of a believer as he could from the inside of a believer to affect chaos. Right? So when we're asking the question, can I be possessed? Maybe that's the wrong question to ask. Maybe we should be asking, can Satan be equally effective against me simply by working on the outside and just convincing and orchestrating circumstances and working in my life in such a way that creates chaos and causes me to make bad decisions and not glorify God? It's entirely possible. He doesn't have to come inside. He's not God. And so rather than us focusing on the what-ifs, we should focus on the empowerment that God has given to us. 1 John, we read that earlier. Greater is he who lives in us than he who is in the world. Ephesians reminds us to put on the full armor of God. And the last passage I'll read, leave you with is Romans 8.38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life... Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Remember what Paul said? Neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons. The bottom line is that God has equipped us and he has empowered us to work against Satan and all of his tactics and all of the demons that he has bidding to do his work. That's it. We have everything available at our disposal to resist, to continue to glorify God in our lives. And nothing can separate us from the love of God, neither height, depth, angels, or demons. They're, they're created beings. They've been made a little higher in God's creative order than we've been made, but we will be elevated. And how wonderful it is that we have been created in the image of God, and when we fell like the angels did, God said, I am going to rescue them back. He has not said that about the fallen angels. Their eternity is done. They know where they're headed. It is a done deal. For you and I, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son that whoever believes in him can have everlasting life. God said of us who were made in his image, the angels were not made in his image, but we being made in his image get to be called sons and daughters of the Most High. We have the opportunity for redemption for salvation. We get to be rescued and made heirs of the kingdom. And that is not true of angels and demons. And that is worthy of praise forever and ever. And one day we will get to praise him forever and ever and ever. Amen.